0: Welcome back everyone and thanks for listening to the Maritime History podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Hubner, and this is episode 4, Mesopotamian Merchants. Before we get started, I want to thank everyone who's already shown support for the podcast. Several listeners have reached out with encouraging words, and I just want you to know that it's very much appreciated. If any of you are interested in supporting the podcast or even in just connecting with the growing community, take a minute to stop by MaritimeHistoryPodcast.com. The website is the best place for you to find any podcast-related info, and there are quite a few links where you can connect with us on social media as well. You can also support the podcast on Patreon if you're feeling generous. I also want to thank Julie Davis over at Forgotten Classics for making the podcast her highlight on episode 263. Forgotten Classics is a podcast that presents fairly obscure classic novels in an episodic fashion, so it's essentially an audiobook podcast where each episode is a chapter or two of the current book. Right now, that book is The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard, an author most famous for his novel King Solomon's Minds, and his character Alan Quatermain, the quintessential adventurer. The People of the Mist is a classic lost race fantasy novel that was originally published as a serial in 1894. The novel follows adventurer Leonard Outram as he seeks wealth, finds romance, and discovers a lost African race and its monstrous god. The podcast is just about to end People of the Mist, and there are 17 other books that have been part of the podcast already, so be sure to check out Forgotten Classics if you love obscure literature in audiobook form. Thanks again, Julie. Now on to the meat of episode 4, in which we're going to focus on the role of the merchant in Mesopotamian society. The Sumerian word for merchant was damkara, and the later Babylonian term was Tom k but unfamiliar words like these really have little meaning without some explanation. And when we hear the word merchant, we attach quite a few preconceptions to it. A good place to start, then, is with an idea that we've already seen in previous episodes. The idea that Mesopotamia was basically devoid of many natural resources that became essential after the region began its transition towards an urban society. Because of that scarcity, merchants actually played a large role in their societies. Whether for consumption or to use as an indication of social status, when the people of Sumer fed a demand for goods, they became the driving force behind Sumer's growth into one of the first cultures to trade on a large scale. Merchants were the people responsible for satisfying that demand for goods, And we'll get into the nitty-gritty details in a bit, but the bottom line is that merchants became the facilitators of long-distance trade because it was a very lucrative business. That being said, I first need to address the historiographic perception of Mesopotamian societal structures as being under the exclusive control of the temple and the palace. For quite a long time, in scholarly circles, it was assumed that state and religion dominated all, and that the people, including the merchant class, were merely tools in the hands of their leaders. In looking back at the ancient dynastic power structures of that day, it can be quite easy to assume that modern man has it right, and that the earliest civilizations were wholly totalitarian in comparison. That viewpoint really colored our perception of how merchants operated, and honestly, by taking a look at the types of records that have survived until today, it's easy to see why historians made the assumption that the state was totalitarian. The main problem is that the overwhelming bulk of administrative and economic records from Mesopotamia are just that, administrative records, meaning that they were created by the temple or palace authorities as a way to account for the flow of goods into and out of the temple or palace in question. Even though it may seem counterintuitive at first, This really shouldn't surprise us. After all, aren't the administrative records of the state kept for longer periods of time than a private citizen or even a businessman would keep their own records? If you're in doubt, consider a modern state. I'm sure most of us in our lives have had, or will have, a frustrating experience with the bureaucratic record-keeping machine of the state. But the reality is that those records will still be sitting somewhere after we're long gone even when our own personal records are oftentimes lost while we're still alive. I would suggest that the situation in Mesopotamia was no different, and that the abundance of state records that have been discovered in archaeological digs only gives us a one-sided picture of the ancient Sumerian economy. To see the other side of that picture, we're unfortunately forced to read between the lines of ancient texts. By looking to the small amount of merchant records that have been discovered, and by considering the common practices of other industries in Mesopotamia, a plausible picture of the merchant class begins to emerge, one where they had wide latitude to operate independently and were largely driven by profit motives, even if the bulk of their trade and business still came from the power centers of the palace and the temple. How do we know that merchants were interested in profit? It's an important question, actually, because it's very central to the opposing views of whether or not merchants functioned independently of the state. Our best evidence for common motivations among professional classes can be found by looking at the practices of animal husbandry and fishing, as strange as those two may sound. These two industries in particular give good examples of how the state would transact business with private individuals, With the basis of the transaction existing in the form of a capital loan and interest being due at a specified point. The business of herding cattle is, to me, the best example of how merchant shipping would likely have worked. In the case of cattle herding, the owner of the cattle would typically give a herder control of a defined number of cattle, and at the end of their agreed-upon term, the herder was then required to return the original number, in addition to a fixed percentage above the original number. Presumably, this percentage was to have come from calves born into the herd. The important point, though, is that the herder was obliged to increase the size of the herd as much as possible, because his profit was measured by whatever increase was left over after he returned the original herd, plus the fixed percentage that was added onto that. Another point that translates to the merchant shipping context is the fact that cattle herders undertook a fairly large risk, in that if the herd did not grow, all of his work would result in no profit at all to him. Fishing was structured in a similar manner. The state was viewed as possessing all of the fishing rights, but those rights were then exchanged in return for a specified quota of fish, the excess being treated as the fisherman's profit margin. Again, as with cattle herding, there was a certain level of risk that the fishermen undertook. Both of these examples tell us that plenty of private individuals undertook business with the state institutions, their main goal being profit. In the case of merchants, it seems that they did the same thing, though there was an added component of credit involved, and the fact that many merchants were financed by private investors in addition to their state financing independent merchants conducting trade on a credit basis led to a complex network of trade that would really be difficult to describe in detail. Add to that the reality that, until later periods of Mesopotamian history, there were different measurement systems among the city-states, and I think you can start to get the idea that the merchant trade in ancient Mesopotamia was actually a complex system that could function apart from the state. Now, that's not to say that the state didn't play a large role, as merchants and the temple or palace actually worked close together, in most cases simply because it was to the benefit of both parties. From the merchant's perspective, the state was an important, if not the most important, customer, and a customer who could provide protection if necessary. From the ruler's perspective, the merchant was the source of goods that couldn't otherwise be obtained. Both the luxury goods that we've already discussed, and the practical necessities that were very important in an empire where resources were scarce. A good example of this relationship between the merchant and the state can be seen in the texts that detail the trade of Aya Nasir, a merchant from Ur who was a wholesale importer of copper from Dilmun, a trade center in the Persian Gulf, and another place that we've already talked about in older episodes. Ea Nashir conducted his business during the reign of Rim-Sin of Larsa, a king who ruled locally during the overarching reign of Hammurabi. Rim-Sin had left Larsa and led an invasion of Ur, after which he placed an order for a large amount of copper from the main copper merchant of Ur. What's amazing to me is that Ea Nashir didn't even live in Ur at the time, but he kept a home in both Ur and in Dilmun, so when he received the order from Sin, he shipped 18,000 kilos of copper up the Persian Gulf to Ur. Apparently, before Aynasher had gone down to Dilmun, several private traders had also invested their capital with his merchant business, asking him to purchase copper on their behalf and have it delivered back to Ur. The financing capital that was widely used in such situations was silver chunks, as coinage had not yet been invented. But investors also used fabrics, perfumes, and oils as capital if they needed to. Anyway, Aynasheir knew that he was guaranteed to profit if he filled the copper order from the king, so all 18,000 kilos went straight to the palace. When the traders in Ur got word that none of the copper in the ships had been sent in order to satisfy their own investments— well, it's safe to say that they were a little upset with A A&H and they sent a barrage of urgent messages back down to Dillman, asking why their copper had not been sent, but the king's copper had. One interesting thing to consider from this example is the way in which relations with the merchant were maintained by an invading king. To me, this demonstrates the reality that people realize the important role that the merchant played, and they went to great lengths to maintain a good relationship with him. After all, even at the points where cities were at war with one another, the merchants from those cities still traded amongst one another and maintained the complex credit system that existed in their culture. The other pertinent point here is simply a demonstration of something that we've already seen. The merchants were independent, by and large, and although they conducted business with private traders, the bulk of their trade still went through the palace because that's where the profit was. Another example of this dynamic at work comes from the transactions of a merchant named Lu Enlila, another merchant from Ur who plied his trade during the third dynasty of Ur. Lu Enlila was part of a merchant family, and is referred to in ancient texts as a seafaring merchant. The two most revealing texts give us a picture of both ends of a trading expedition. The first one lists the goods that were given to Lu and Lila by the temple of Nana before he left Ur to trade in Magan on the temple's behalf. The temple gave him 1,800 kilos of wool, 300 kilos of plant material, 600 kilos of fish, 1,500 liters of sesame oil, and an unspecified amount of animal hides and garments. The second text is a receipt that tells us what he obtained in Magan in exchange for all the Mesopotamian goods that he had brought south. The Magan merchants traded him 150 kilos of copper, which were probably locally produced, along with many non-local items such as ivory, precious stones, and red ochre, Items that originated in various locations across the Near East. Several other texts detail how he gave tithes at the temple upon returning with the goods he'd obtained in Magan. In one instance, the tithe consisted of 10 liters of onions and 20 liters of perfume. In another, his tithe was a large amount of grain. Scholars have suggested that his tithe to the temple reflected a percentage of the personal profit that he had reaped through his transactions, an interpretation that lends credence to our earlier discussion of profit motive as being a basis of merchant activity. The other fact about Lu and Lilla is a bit more intriguing, even if it doesn't tell us quite as much, though it may. I previously said that Lu and Lilla was part of a merchant family, and, apparently, his family was well-connected with the royal family of Ur. As you can imagine, that likely provided them with a leg up on the merchant competition, but it also demonstrates that the state was quite powerful in ancient Mesopotamia, and the closer your connection to it, the more well-off you were likely to become. I know that I stressed earlier the fact that merchants weren't completely controlled by the state, and I still stick by that claim. But hopefully now the picture is a little more clear that they conducted business as individual merchants, but frequently gravitated toward transacting business with the most lucrative customers. In most cases, the state and temple were the chief among them. That then brings us to the last merchant-related point that I wanted to make, a point that gives us a glimpse at how the state sought to protect the merchants and to foster the clean transaction of business partially out of self-interest, but partially because higher levels of trade were beneficial for everyone in Mesopotamia, not just the state structure. The main source of law that governed shipping and trade in Mesopotamia comes from, what else, other than Hammurabi's Code? Now, there were law codes in existence before the famous Code of Hammurabi, the oldest text being the Law Code of Ur-Nammu. The king who founded the third dynasty of Ur, and even still, Ur-Nammu's code was based on earlier codes that have not yet even been discovered. The first law code to specifically mention shipping and trade was Hammurabi's code, but the provisions regulating water-based trade are only a fraction of the entire code. Measuring in at a code of 282 distinct laws, Hammurabi's code deals with topics as diverse as slavery, the duties owed by workers, food and price control, and perhaps the most well-known, the criminal punishment principle, later known by the Latin term lex talionis, which stands for the code's gradations of punishment, shown by the phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The law student in me wants to indulge in a long and winding rabbit trail to talk about how even the earliest law codes show mankind's recognition of human life as having inherent worth, in addition to the innate sense of fairness and justice that existed as a basis for these ancient law codes. Now, obviously, our conceptions of justice and fairness have been refined in the millennia since, and issues like slavery have seen radical shifts but I'm speaking on a very fundamental level. In the interest of keeping things focused, though, I'll not chase the rabbit. If you're interested in pursuing a topic further, consider shooting me an email or joining the forum that's connected to the Maritime History Podcast website. Back to business for now, though. Although there are dozens of provisions from Hammurabi's code that touch on business transactions and interest rates in some way, I'm going to narrow our focus down to the nine laws that are directly related to shipping. Three of them relate to hiring or renting a boat. The cheapest boat to rent was the freight boat, which costed two and a half gira per day. A ferry boat was three gira per day, and a ship that could carry 60 gur of grain was one-sixth of a shekel per day. The shekel was a common unit of price in the ancient world. And estimates are that it was a measurement of silver, weighing in at around eight and one-third grams. Although weights and measurements did vary over time and between cities, a gira was one twentieth of a shekel. So we can deduce that, with the relationship between prices and weights in ancient Mesopotamia, a freight boat could carry the least, and that a sixty gur boat was the largest standard size for a transport ship. The next two laws work together by fixing a price to be charged for the construction of a ship, and then requiring the builder to guarantee the ship's seaworthiness for a year's time. The first law sets the price for a 60-ger ship at two shekels, and it's interesting to consider this price in connection with the daily rental prices that we saw a moment ago. Purchasing a ship outright would cost 12 times what it would cost to rent the same ship for one day. Just as in the modern world, there were numerous varying situations where it would make sense for one person to buy a ship, while it made more sense for another person to simply rent it. The second law in the complementary pair provides a guarantee of seaworthiness to those who decided to purchase a ship. If a shipbuilder build a boat for someone and did not make it tight, if during that same year that boat is sent away and suffers injury, the shipbuilder shall take the boat apart and put it together tight at his own expense. The tight boat he shall give to the boat owner. Essentially then, a ship buyer was given a one-year warranty, during which if the ship suffered damage, the builder was obligated to repair the ship. It isn't explicit in the text, but it does seem to imply that the warranty only stands if the ship is damaged because of a defect caused by the builder. The law carries the qualifier that if, during the year following its completion, the ship suffers injury because the shipbuilder failed to make it tight, then the shipbuilder is obligated to carry the cost of repair. To put it together tight, as the law calls it. We're forced to read between the lines on this one, but it stands to reason that a law code with so many other provisions for fairness would probably recognize that a builder shouldn't be liable if the buyer wrecks the ship because he was negligent. My reading of this law is that only construction defects are covered under the warranty, but I do have to admit that I'm making a slight assumption, and it's not completely clear from the text itself. A few other provisions tell us that sailors who rented boats were liable for any damage that they negligently caused. If only the boat was lost, then the sailor had to provide the owner with a replacement. If the boat had cargo on board, and the cargo was lost, then the sailor was obligated to provide a replacement boat and to compensate the owner for the value of the cargo that was lost. Again, these provisions should sound familiar to us today. And they carry with them a sense of fairness, even if ancient Babylonia didn't yet recognize the concept of consequential damages stemming from lost profits. Another straightforward law concerned ship owners who hired sailors to serve as crew on board a ship. Sailors hired to work on a ship were to be paid six gur of grain per year. The last shipping related law that I want to touch on is perhaps the most interesting of the bunch. And it's one of what can be called the rules of the road, even though there aren't any actual roads involved. The text of the law reads If a merchantman run against a ferryboat and wreck it, the master of the ship that was wrecked shall seek justice before God. The master of the merchantman, which wrecked the ferryboat, must compensate the owner for the boat and all that he ruined. In my research, I've found two possible interpretations of this law that both seem plausible, so I'll mention both of them. The first interpretation is that if two ships were involved in a collision, with one ship at anchor and the other ship underway, then the ship underway was responsible for the cost of repairs to the damaged ship, in addition to, presumably, the repair of his own ship. The other interpretation that seemed plausible is worth mentioning, because a lot of the shipping that took place in Mesopotamia was done via the rivers that pierced into the heart of the land. The nature of river shipping is that, depending on which direction you were traveling, the stream would either be working with you or working against you. Thus, the other interpretation of this law is that the ship proceeding downstream was required to give way to the ship fighting upstream and I wouldn't at all be surprised if this were the correct view. In his book, The Sea and Civilization, historian Lincoln Payne includes a helpful footnote to tell us that rules of the road were once so called because they governed navigation on a roadstead, or a narrow stretch of open water, in which ships would ride at anchor. He also points out that these earliest of shipping laws provided the basis of commercial and maritime law throughout the following millennia, but it was not until the emergence of the steam engine and engine-driven navigation that rules of the road for maritime shipping were given the force of law. In most maritime nations, such rules were observed by custom out of necessity, but the globalization of trade and shipping led to the passage of navigation laws in the 1840s And today there are the International Regulations for Preventing Collisions at Sea, or CALREGS for short, which are also supplemented by national laws regulating inland waterways and international laws that govern coastal waterways. Quite a lot to keep track of if you're a ship captain today, especially in comparison to a ship captain in ancient Mesopotamia. Well, that does it for the fourth episode of the Maritime History Podcast. Thanks once again for tuning in. Take a moment to stop by our website if you like and connect with the community there. And one other thing before you go, I have started a Patreon campaign to try and help cover the costs of hosting the podcast and the website. So if you feel it would be worthwhile to help support the podcast, please take the time to visit the website and click on the button that says Become My Patron on Patreon if you'd like to learn more about it. Be sure to come back for episode 5, where we'll finally leave Mesopotamia behind and get our first glimpse of the land of the pharaohs. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.